to Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who weren't around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines in Artemis, of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in, relate, in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, uh, welcome everyone to HBC this morning. It's great to have you with us. I hope you're enjoying your long weekend. Long weekends are such a, a great opportunity, aren't they, for us to, to get out and do those kind of jobs that we've been dreaming about uh, doing for a long time. Uh, I did a feed and weed of my lawn this, uh, this weekend, which is a big thing for me. I feel like I'm becoming a real adult when I feed and weed my lawn. Uh, but it struck me as I was doing this, that in my observation of life, there are generally two types of people, I think. There's, there's the dreamers and the realists. And the dreamers are, are those who see the big picture, aren't they? They're, they're thinking about the final product, the end game, what things could be. But the realists, on the other hand, are more concerned with the details, what making things happen on the ground level actually involves. I wonder which one... Uh, you are. Personally, I am a dreamer. For me, it's all about vision, all about big picture. But my wife, Katie, is a realist. And you'll know this if you've met her. And, and as much as I find that kind of uh, thing frustrating at times, I have to admit, it is really helpful. Because those of us who live in the world of dreams, we need those who live in the world of details. We need the pragmatists because they ground our ideas and our, and our hopes, our ambitions in the real world. They help us think through what to expect in reality. Now, this has become apparent to me recently as Katie and I have discussed the idea of getting a fireplace. I, I love the idea of curling up in front of a warm and crackling fireplace on a cold winter's night. That's my dream. And Katie, she's not opposed to that, but she does adjust my expectations of what having a fireplace really entails. Uh, usually she does this through asking good questions like, so Dave, where are you going to get wood for this fireplace? And how much is that going to cost? Have you thought about where you're going to store it? How often are you at home of a night to use it? Are you going to spend your cold, dark winter evenings in the backyard chopping wood for it? And that's helpful, right? That, that is really helpful for me. Frustrating, but helpful. It's helpful to think through that stuff. It's helpful to know what my dream of having a fireplace looks like so that I can know what to expect in reality. And this morning, I want to, I want you to help me convince Katie why a fireplace is a fantastic idea. No, not really. What I want to do this morning is spend some time adjusting our expectations, right? Because you might not know this, but, but Richard mentioned it before. We here at Hunter Bible Church, we have a dream for our city. We have this picture, this prayer of what we want for this place that we call home. We're praying that God would save 30,000 people in New Ian Lake Mac, that, that everyone in the Hunter 
would know someone who is a Christian. And we're praying that he might use us in this process. Our dream is that we would be a church that takes the gospel to Nui and Lake Mac. That's a fantastic dream, isn't it? It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a big vision. And it's one of the reasons I love this church because we're not just concerned about what's happening in here, in our family. We want to reach the city with the good news of Jesus. But I wonder, have you ever thought through what that looks like in reality? On the ground level, what are you expecting to happen as we take Jesus to those around us here? You know, Acts 19 is, is the perfect passage for shaping our expectations of, of what it will look like to make Jesus known in Newey and Lake Mac. Because in Acts 19, the gospel comes to Ephesus. And boy, does it shake things up. It's, it's just uh, Ephesus as a city. It's just a bunch of ru- rubble and ruins now. But in the time of Acts, Ephesus was this thriving, remarkable city. It was this hustling and bustling center for trade and politics and religion. And it was most well known for the great temple of Artemis. Now, Artemis was the, the Greek goddess of fertility. And her temple was actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the people of Ephesus, they were devoted to her. They were obsessed with worshipping her and they were obsessed with all these kind of these spells and incantations. They had all these scrolls of magic and they were obsessed with the supernatural. They were always wanting to perform the right ritual to be blessed by the gods to make their life prosperous. But when the gospel comes to Ephesus, it changes all of that. And look, it's into this culture, this supernatural, obsessed with magic, or it's into this worship of Artemis that the gospel comes in Acts 19. And as we read Acts 19, the first few verses, we see the first thing we're to expect as we take the gospel to our city too. Just have a look at what happens in Acts 19 verse 1. It says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hand on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. Now, this whole story is kind of strange, isn't it? It's a little bit weird. Paul barely makes it into Ephesus before he meets some disciples who believe, but they don't have the Spirit. That's kind of strange, isn't it? What's what's going on there? How can someone be a disciple, a believer, and not have the Spirit? Well, some people, some Christians will use this passage to try and support the idea that there are two types of followers of Jesus. There's the regular believers, but then there's the believers who are Spirit-filled, kind of like special believers, right? Extra, super-Christian, Spirit-filled believers are, are those who have received the Holy Spirit, in an event that's often called a second baptism. And they can do all kinds of 
supernatural and, and special things, right? They can speak in tongues, but, but that's actually not what this passage is about at all. Now, just, just look again more closely at who it is these disciples actually follow. Verse 3, they've been baptized by John. They've received John's baptism. Now, see, the, the word disciple there, it's just the word for follower. They, they've, these guys have received John's baptism. They believe his messages. They're followers of John, and that's good. That's, that's right. That's true, but it's, it's not enough. It's incomplete. See, John's ministry, it was all about pointing forward to the one who would come after him, wasn't it? John was just preparing the way for the one who would come and really deal with sin, for the one who we are really meant to follow. But he wasn't the Christ, was he? He wasn't the Savior. He wasn't Jesus. These guys, they were followers of John. They believed John's message, but they hadn't come to know and trust in Jesus. They hadn't come to understand the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is, they hadn't fully heard the gospel. That's why, verse 4, Paul brings them up to speed on Jesus and they get baptized into his name. And as happens occasionally in Acts, in this kind of great sign, this great confirmation that the Spirit has come on these guys, they speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, this passage, it's not about second baptisms and spirit filled Christians. There is no two types of of Christians, right? No two levels of following Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to have the Spirit. And to have the Spirit is to believe in Jesus. Now, it's funny, Paul actually, later on, when he's writing to the Ephesian church, later in his ministry, that he's now establishing here in Acts, he, he says this, And you, Ephesians, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him, that's in Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. See, the reason John's disciples here don't have the Spirit is that they they simply haven't heard the full gospel. Of Jesus the Christ. But when they do, when Paul brings it to them, they trust in Him. They put their hope in Him and they receive the Holy Spirit and are saved. You know, I think this passage, it, it, it reminds us of how central Jesus is to our salvation, doesn't it? Because these guys, they're close to the kingdom, but they're not close enough. They, they didn't have Jesus They hadn't heard the gospel. And so they actually weren't in the kingdom at all. They weren't saved at all because they didn't have Jesus. Now, we don't actually have many disciples of John these days here in Newcastle and Lake Mac, do we? But but perhaps one group that's close to these guys is is the nominal Christians. The the people who who grew up in church and know many of the Bible stories, maybe even call themselves Christians, but but they haven't understood the gospel. I think, I reckon many of our baby boomer generation actually fall into this category, don't they? They grew up in church. They can tell you about David and Goliath, right? They can tell you about Moses, but they don't know that Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the grave. 
And you know there's about 80,000 baby boomers in Newey and Lake Mac. That's about 25% of our population. People who probably think they are saved. People who think they are Christians, but don't know the gospel. Now, if we're going to take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, we've got to find a way to reach these people, don't we? Because there is no salvation outside of Jesus. Maybe you're even watching this this morning, calling yourself a Christian. Maybe you were baptized as a kid or something like that. But, but you yourself are not sure why it is Jesus had to die and why it matters that he rose again. We would love to help you think through that because this is the heart of what being a Christian is all about. And you can let us know you're interested in that by filling out the online connect form uh, on our website. And it's important that you do because there is no salvation apart from Jesus. And that's why our city needs the gospel. You know, I was driving here this morning on the Pacific Highway from, from Charlestown to, to Merriweather. And as you do that, you can, actually, you can actually see down, you can see so much of the city. And I thought, what are these people doing this morning? What, what is their life about? God has made them and they don't know Him. God has made them and they live in rebellion against Him. And at this moment, they're destined for hell. And well, what this city needs is not a long weekend, right? It's not a day at the beach. What they need is the gospel. The gospel that saves. And that's why we as a church, we, we want to be a church that proclaims the gospel. We're upfront about that. Because when the gospel is proclaimed, just like John's disciples here in Ephesus, God saves people. And we should expect that to happen. As we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, we should expect people to become Christians and praise God that happens all the time. God in His grace is rescuing people all the time here in our city, week after week, month after month, year after year. As we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, God in His goodness, in His kindness and compassion, He plucks them from the fires of hell. He takes them out from under His wrath and brings them into the kingdom of Jesus. This year, even in COVID, even with everything going on this year in COVID, we've seen 17 people come to trust in Jesus. That's not a number, right? That, those are real people that now know Jesus and trust Him. Praise God for that. How good is our God? Let's keep being a people who take the gospel to our families, to our sports teams, to our colleagues, to our neighbours, because as we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, God will save people. And that's the first thing we should expect. But you know, that's not actually all we should expect. That is, as we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, we should expect God will save people, but, but we should also expect God will change people too. Because again, that's precisely what happens here in Ephesus, isn't it? As we keep reading the story, Paul, he, he sticks around in Ephesus for another two years and he does what he always does, right? He argues and he reasons and he teaches people about Jesus, about the kingdom. He starts in the synagogue and then he gets kicked out of there and he ends up in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, uh, who I'm pretty sure his last name was Asaurus Rex. That's terrible. I'm really sorry. I'll take that out for the rest of today. Uh, God, does extraordinary, God does these extraordinary miracles through him as he does this too. And I don't know, as you read that, that kind of seems a bit redundant, doesn't it? To call miracles extraordinary. Because by definition, a miracle is something out of the ordinary. 
That's how you define what a miracle is. But, but the miracles that God performs through Paul here, he says they're especially amazing. They're extra, extraordinary. Handkerchiefs, aprons that only touch Paul, they're taken to the sick and, and they're used to heal them and they're used to cast out demons. This is amazing, unheard of stuff, right? And it, it figures that people would want to try and get in on the act themselves. They want to try and be like Paul and use this for their own gain. That's precisely what happens. Just look there in verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. So you see what happens here, right? These sons of Sceva, they get word of what's happening. They maybe see it for themselves and they want to copy Paul and they want to try to use God's name like a party trick for their own prestige and renown. But look at how it turns out for them in verse 15. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? What a smackdown here, right? Then the, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and had overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, this kind of seems comical, this story, doesn't it? But in reality, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. Seven guys overpowered by just one man who's possessed by an evil spirit. I think it reminds us that, that God is not someone to be toyed with, right? God is not a, a magic genie we can use for our own ends. And that is one of the big dangers of movements like the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. Movements which, which try and take advantage of God's name for their own profit, gain and end. Now, that is a very dangerous and damaging game to play. But the thing that's most amazing here in this passage is actually the impact it has on the whole city of Ephesus and particularly the Christians. Just have a look there in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery, who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. You see what happens there? It's incredible, isn't it? Naturally, this story spreads like wildfire and the whole city reveres the name of Jesus. But the Christians in particular, well, they're radically transformed. They come and they, they burn their scrolls with all the spells and incantations on them, right? They repent of practicing sorcery and their love of magic. God uses what happens here to radically transform their lives to be more in line with His. Because well, Christianity, it's not just about believing a message, is it? It's about entering into a new relationship. It's choosing to begin a relationship with, with Jesus, with Jesus as your Lord, with Jesus as your King. So choosing to follow Jesus, it, it's like choosing to let Him come in and renovate your life. Rip up the carpets, repaint the walls, tear down those parts of our lives that belong to this world. Those parts of our lives that we used to walk in 
that don't fit with his rule anymore. And then he puts in their place his glory, his will, his honor, and his name. It's so important to remember that, that as we take the gospel to our city, as we call people to come and trust in Jesus, we're also calling them to come and obey Jesus. Trusting Jesus is not just trusting him with your salvation. It's trusting him to, to lead you in life. He's trusting him to show you how to live. It's trusting him as your Lord. We're calling people, as we tell them the gospel, to reorientate their entire lives around Jesus, his will, his kingdom. And that means change. Of course that means change. It's going to change how people think about sex. It's going to change how they use and value money. It's going to change how they speak and act towards others. Jesus, over time, will completely change every single one of us to think how he thinks, to love what he loves, to live his way in accordance with his will. Because when the gospel comes into people's lives, we should expect God to change them. This is so true for us, isn't it? I know for me, uh, when I decided to follow Jesus, uh, letting Jesus transform, particularly how I thought about sex, was it was slow and it was difficult and it was painful because our culture's view of sex is so warped, isn't it? It's so different from God's view. But with Jesus as my king, that had to change. I wonder what it is for you. What, what are the parts of your life that you're yet to give over to Jesus? Is there some aspect of your old way of life, some aspect of our world's culture that you're still hanging on to and you need to give to Jesus? Maybe it's careerism. Maybe it's how you use your speech, right? Gossip or slander, how we speak about our husbands and wives and things like that, how we use our words. Maybe for you it's pornography or Tinder or hookup apps, a love of money love of possessions and stuff. Maybe it's, it's alcoholism or drugs. Maybe for you, it is the occult. Maybe it's tarot cards or, or Ouija boards or horoscopes or fortune tellers. Or maybe it's just some form of religious thing that you used to do, like, like you used to pray to Mary or you used to pray to the saints. What is that aspect of your life that you haven't given, that you haven't brought under Jesus' rule yet? Maybe today it's the time to give that to Jesus. I mean, this morning is the perfect morning to do that. Repent of it. Confess it to God. Get rid of it from your life. And do what you need to do to start to deal with that. Because God doesn't just want to save us. He wants to completely transform our lives around Jesus. And as we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, He'll radically transform the lives of this place too, won't he? He'll radically transform their lives around Jesus too. We should expect that to happen. And you know, one of the things we have to grasp, I think too, is that as, as we do that, as God does that, as God saves people and transforms people in Newey and Lake Mac, that's going to cause waves. That's not going to go unnoticed. People will see it, and, and they'll be drawn to Jesus. But they'll also want to push him away too, won't they? Which is actually the final thing we should expect as we take the gospel out. The third thing that we see in this passage, in fact, 
And when the gospel comes to Ephesus, it inevitably causes conflict. So in verse 9, we see that Paul preaches and some publicly malign the way. But you see it even more clearly down in verse 23. Just look there. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which is another way of talking about Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And there's a danger that, that not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Oh, what an impact the gospel has on this city, right? How amazing is this? The, the, the radically transformed lives of the Christians in Ephesus, it's so tangible. It's so visible that it starts to put pressure on the economy, on the industry. They're not buying idols and scrolls anymore because they've, they've let God reorientate their life around Jesus. And the idol makers, they start to lose business. So, so what happens is Demetrius, he goes out and he tries to stir up the people against Christianity. He leads a revolt against this, these people, these followers of Christ. And the whole thing gets out of control. They're shouting, they end up rioting, they're chanting in the streets. It's, it's chaos. The impact of the gospel inevitably causes opposition and conflict. And I, I want to say here that it's, it's not that Christians incite that chaos. In fact, by the end of the story, we see that they've done nothing wrong at all. They're not violent. They're not aggressive. In fact, as far as it's possible, Jesus calls us to submit to authorities, live at peace with all. But when the gospel is preached, opposition always arises. Inevitably, conflict follows. I wonder if you're expecting that. I wonder if you've come to grips with that yet. As we take the gospel to New Ian Lake Mac, it is going to cause conflict. Not because we're trying to cause it, but of course it will. We're calling people to live a new way, to follow a new Lord. And as we live these radically transformed lives for Jesus, conflict is surely going to come our way. People will hate us. Of course they're going to hate us. People will mock us. People will accuse us of evil. Are you prepared for that? Are you willing to endure that? Have you come to terms with the fact that this is what following Jesus is going to entail for you, for your, your kids, for their kids? Because it already happens, doesn't it? Now, I was chatting to one guy from our church who told me about how he lost his job for speaking about Jesus. One lady I was speaking to, she told me how her workplace thinks she's crazy because she didn't want to take a promotion so she could have more time to serve Jesus in ministry. And her workplace, they ridiculed for her. They thought she was nuts, right? One of the tradies from our, our church had to quit because his boss wanted him to do cashies. But Jesus calls us not to break the law. The local paper here, it's written articles about HBC accusing us of HP. People think, people think we're weird. Of course, people think we're different, right? We are different. We should be different. And maybe if 
we're not different. Maybe that's why we don't face persecution. Look, this is not something that we deliberately seek out, but in a world that hates Jesus, of course proclaiming His gospel and living His way will rustle feathers. At some stage, we have to grow up about this. We have to come to grips with this. At some point, you have to say, you know what? I I love Jesus so much that I know what it's going to cost, but I still want to do it. I still want to live His way. I, I love Him more than their approval, than my comfort. Because as we take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, we should expect there to be conflict. You know, it's a, it's a massive dream we have for this city, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful picture of who we want to be as a church. As we, as we talk about wanting to be a people who take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac, it's so crucial we know what to expect. It's so crucial we connect our dream with reality and know what to expect along the way. We should expect big things. We should expect God to save people. We should expect Him to radically transform people's lives around Jesus. But all along the way, we should expect it to cause conflict too. You know, knowing all this, knowing all of this, I want to invite you to join us. Join us in your heart with this great prayer, vision and dream. Make our prayer, our dream, our vision as a church, your dream for you and your family too. This summer, because of COVID, we have no wave. We've got no carols, but, but that doesn't change our mission at all. We still want to take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac. And in the coming weeks, you're actually going to start to hear about a whole bunch of opportunities we have to make Jesus known in this city over summer. But why not start now to pray for those who don't know Jesus in your life? for your family, for your friends, for your colleagues, for the the guys on your sports teams, the mums at the school gate, the kids in your class, right? Your local barista. Pray that God would use you this summer to take the gospel to them, knowing there'll be opposition and conflict, of course. Knowing too, though, that God will save some and radically transform their lives around Jesus. How about we pray for that now? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the gospel has come to us. That for thousands of years, Christians, you have used Christians to pass on the gospel, to make Jesus known in city after city after city. And we praise you so much for this because that means that we know your salvation, that we know you. Father, we love you so much and we want to live lives that honor and glorify you. And so we pray you would help us in our hearts to share your mission. We pray you would help us to to embody and and to value and to live out this dream we have of seeing 30,000 people come to know Jesus, of being a church that takes the gospel to the city. And we pray that as we do that, we, we know what we will expect. We know that people will oppose us and we ask that you'd give us courage to stand firm boldness and a love of Jesus that overcomes all barriers. But we're also expecting that you will save people and radically transform their lives. Father, thank you so much for the way you've done this for 17 people just through our church here this year so far. And we ask that as we look to summer, 
you would give us a great zeal and a great passion for those in our life who don't know Jesus, that you might save them and you might transform their lives around him. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.